Welcome back to another edition of Mormon Expression, uh, Mormon Expression Live, as it were. Uh, I'm your host, uh, John Larson, and tonight uh, we are doing the uh, the book club. This is our the second installment in the uh, fabulous series of, uh, of reviews of the best and worst of, uh, of Mormon literature, I suppose. I guess this really doesn't qualify as literature. Tonight we're talking about the book. Um, it's got a really long title. Yeah. Uh, let me let me see the book. It's even longer than that. The, the title of the book is Mormon Enigma, Emma Hale Smith, Prophet's Wife, Elect Lady, Elect Lady, Polygamy's Foe, 1804 to 1879. Written by Linda King Newell and Valine Tippett's Avery. Um, so tonight we are in studio with a um, um, a panel. Of uh, wonderful people. Uh, first of all, returning from our first uh, um, book club is is Jessica. Hi, Jessica. Welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me back. Well, it's my pleasure. Um, also, we have uh, uh, Robin. Hey, Robin. Hello. So glad to be here. Uh, I'm glad you're here. And Alicia. 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 <laughs> See, I, I, I screwed <laughs> it up. Okay. Alicia. Sorry. Welcome. This is your first time. Yeah, this is my first so, time. Excited so, though. What what what's your impression of the the den of iniquity here? <laughs> you know, I think it's rather tastefully decorated. So. Well, thank you. I, I decorated it myself. Even the crooked picture on the back wall there. Um, and then um, at my side, sharing my mic is uh, Zilpha. Hello, everybody. Hello. Um, so uh, and then you all out there in the uh, in the wide world. All right, so uh, a couple of announcements before we start. Um, first of all, the uh, the uh, book club is made possible by uh, um, you all reading the book and then calling in. Uh, let me give instructions for how to call in. Um, there there are two ways. If you're on the Ustream, which is Ustream TV, and if you search for Mormon Expression, you'll find us. That's how you can hear this live. Um, uh, you can uh, start the chat client. You can chat a question to us as you listen. That's great. Uh, the other thing is you can do you can do is you can actually Skype call us in. Uh, what you need to be is on Skype. You need to search for your friend Mormon Expression um, if you haven't uh, made a connection with us before. Um, when you want to come in, what you need to do is text me. If you call, I won't answer, and then I'll text you back, and then I'll bring you in when we're when we're ready ready for you. So it's a little bit uh, cumbersome, but not that bad. You can handle it. I I, I believe in you. I know you can do it. Um, let's go through a couple other things. First of all, uh, we have to push the cruise coming up uh, in on September 23rd. Um, I, we're hearing there's going to be people out there, but other than Zilpha and I, so that will be uh, that'll be fun, uh, a good weekend to spend with others like unto yourself. Um, uh, starting, we need to start plugging our live main event um, on August 6th. Uh, it's the same week as Sunstone. If you're in Utah, you can come see our event. There's going to be live speakers, music. It should be kick-ass. We're looking forward to a good, a, a good time there. Uh, the tickets will probably go on sale in late spring, but you can you can plan for it now. Um, also uh, coming up here in a couple of in a couple of months is our essay contest. You can start thinking about your essay, a ten-minute essay on anything to do with Mormonism. We give out a hundred bucks to the winner, and um, fame and fortune follows. Um, next, our our next week for we're broadcasting again live. We are doing the uh, manifesto number one for dummies. Um, so uh, you can call in. You don't and it, because it's dummies, you don't have to read anything. But the manifesto number one is in the back of your doctrine and covenants. It's about a page, two pages long, and we'll be going through that. So uh, that'll be eight o'clock Mountain Time um, next Sunday. And of course, our next book club is uh, a month from now. We do it the second Sunday of every month. Um, and that will be Goodbye, I Love You by Carolyn Pearson, um, which should be sad. Okay, uh, did I forget anything? That was great. All right. Um, let's, uh, let's, let's go ahead and get started. Let's, let, I'm going to take just a, a second and give a background to the book, and then I'm going to turn it all over to you to uh, tell us what's good and bad about the book. So, so this book was published in um, the fall of 1984. Um, and there's a sort of a, a backstory to it. Um, both the, the women who wrote the book were faithful, active members, and um, 
um, one has passed away, the other is, is still alive today, um, but they both still remain active active members of the church. Um, and there was sort of a controversy around the book. Um, and in that uh, priesthood circular went out, I think, all through Utah, um, telling all priesthood leaders that they were not allowed to have either woman um, speak about the book um, in any setting. So at the time, during the 80s, there was the Know Your Religion series, and it, it was really common to have firesides um, about people who knew something about something or the other. And um, they, they, summer, they, they, got, they got stopped immediately. Well, the, the, the two women actually requested and were granted a meeting with um, the, the, the top brass. They met with Oaks and uh, Maxwell. Um, this would be around about the early summer of, of 1985. Um, and the, the meeting went back and forth. The, the, what was really confusing to the authors is that they remained members in good standing, although there were rumors going around they'd be excommunicated or whatever. Um, but they were never told anything. That, that went out in sort of that secret circular letter, and they only knew about it because they had friends who were, you know, stake presidents or whatever, who shared it with them. Um, when they met with um, the, the brethren, you know, they said, well, what's, what's going on? And... Um, and Oaks said something that was very informative. Um, here's his quote. I pulled this out of um, out of Dialogue magazine. Um, if Mormon Enigma reveals information that is detrimental to the reputation of Joseph Smith, then it is necessary to try to I can't read my own writing to try to um, I think stop its influence and that of its authors. Um, so they uh, the you know they they basically said doesn't matter if what you're saying is true or not. If you're going to say something that's outside the normal line, we don't want you talking about it. And, um, of course, um, the authors were blacklisted. Um, you can read about the, the blacklisting in, um, in Arrington's book on Adventures of a Church Historian. He talks about it quite extensively. The church maintains a blacklist of all the books and authors that are not allowed to be quoted. This effectively um, ruined the two women's careers for, you know, um, speaking or engaging with the the um, active Latter Day Saints, although you can still buy this book through Deseret Book, so it's remained it's it's remained uh, it's remained sort of an enigma itself. Um, <laughs> so I guess I guess that's fitting for for the book. So that, that's that's the background to the book. Um, Zilf is flagging something in my face. What what's this? Oh yeah, it, the book won won several awards. Um, from in 1984, it won an award from the Mormon History Association for best book, um, and it also won an award from BYU. I can't remember what the award was, which sort of put the church in a bind because they had recognized it as a great book, and then they were stopping it at the same time. So that's sort of the the, the background to this book, and let let's um let's get into it. So um, let's start with general overall impressions. Hmm. Not my favorite book. I didn't. It, it's still an enigma to me. I feel like I read the book and I'm still a little confused on Emma Hale Smith, the woman. Like I, right. I, I've read all the history now. I'm like, okay, you know, my knowledge about Emma sort of stopped with the martyr. You know, growing up in the church, that's just kind of where my knowledge stopped. And so that was kind of interesting to read more of the history, but. Emma, the woman, I'm like, who, who is she? What makes her laugh? What, what makes her tick? What kind of a woman is she? It's still a mystery. I think we're, we're missing so much of that information. Um, but I thought, you know, from, from, um, to be too, be, in comparison to what I knew about Emma before I read this book to after, I mean, it's just huge. That's because true. Because before I really just knew she was the prophet's wife. And she stayed behind in Nauvoo um, and kind of apostatized. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was my impression of her. So I think this was really enlightening. Um, and it did give us an, an insight into who, who she was and how, how, actually, how she saw the church and Joseph Smith. More, more than, like, who is Emma, it's mm -hmm. like the church and Joseph Smith through Emma's eyes. Exactly, yeah. And that, that's actually something that I kind of liked about the book. Uh, from a feminist perspective, it's really interesting to kind of shift the way we normally think about church history and look at it from a different angle of vision, from a more personal um, perspective, to see how it affected one individual particularly. And also to just kind of think about um, the role that she did play in church history. I thought that was really interesting, too. So, anyway. Yeah, and I've read a, quite a few books, although I'm a few years past that, to where some of the 
exact details uh, fail me. But the one thing I enjoyed about uh, reading this book again is it pretty much hits on about everything. So I can see why it might be considered not so faith-promoting. So um, what would you guys say is the book's central premise? Is there a central premise to the book? Well, I think one of the purposes that it's gearing at is it's trying to kind of um, reclaim Emma's history, you know, because in the post-Brigham Young era, obviously, she's given a really bad reputation that's kind of um, set up by Brigham Young. And part of that is to sort of say, to claim that back and say, oh, no, let's let's kind of um, revise what we know about Emma Smith and, and not treat her so much as this sort of demon figure, but um, but uh, notice that she had valid reasons for doing the things that she did. So. Right. So uh, should we should we start at the um, at the beginning? Was was there anything about Joseph and Emma's courtship and early marriage that that really struck you that maybe you learned? I mean, one thing I learned is that they eloped. Joseph and Emma, because Emma's parents um, were disapproving of of the marriage, yes. and and that really um, distanced her from her family for the rest of her life, pretty much, especially her her parents. Yes. Any other? And I believe there was uh, a section where it described, um, I think it was a neighbor, I can't remember exactly who, that recalled when they drove up in the carriage and her father saw them and just was very angry. And and then Joseph, of course, at some point promising to stop the the treasure digging. And then and then he came up with the Book of Mormon, which didn't impress Emma's father at all. No, not at all. Especially since he'd already made a promise to him that he wouldn't continue with his money digging activities. And that looked like a to Isaac Hale as a very clear breach of that promise. Right. That's what it looked like to him. One thing I do think is interesting is that um um, you, you already early on, you get to see a little bit of Emma's sort of headstrong nature that she's not willing to just, you know, accept what an authority figure tells her to do, such as her father, that she's willing to kind of go with what she thinks is the right thing to do, even if others don't agree. Right. And she, she proved that, um, part of her personality all throughout her life over and over again. Oh, we, um, we have a caller coming, uh, to... To join us, it's Chris. It's just me. So uh, what do you think about this book, Chris? Um, As I was saying in the chat, at the end of this book, I still had not figured out Emma. There were so many uh, personality inconsistencies with her that I couldn't figure out uh, what was motivating her. Did she have a fear of Joseph? What was going on? Why was she this strong-willed, educated, opinionated woman? And yet there are so many times within the book that she would defer in the the most strange situations, like uh, when he was hiding the gold plates under the bed and she wouldn't look at it. Uh, This, this to me, was something that was completely inconsistent with what a an educated, intelligent woman would normally do. Yes. Hey, th- this leads to my like chief complaint about the book, um, and that might feed on this a little bit. Uh, my, my complaint about the book is it's really a biography of Joseph Smith through the eyes of Emma Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I know the biographers only have so much source material to work with, but, you know, really, t- to me, the, the whole... What who is Emma is still lacking at the at the end of the book. You know, I agree completely. It, it's more like how did Joseph sort of yang around and mistreat Emma is 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 the the juxta of the book. So I wonder how much of that that Emma's sort of lack of independent direction just comes from the fact that we don't know every time she like yelled at Joseph Smith. <laughs> that frustrated me as well, and also. About halfway through the book, I was going, this this is, this is whole book is like jokes on Emma. The whole story was about the joke being on Emma, you know, where Joseph was hiding all these women and shuffling them around and lying to her and telling her one thing and then doing the other. And uh, it, I was very frustrated for Emma uh, while reading the book because I was not given enough uh, source information to be able to understand why she was allowing this stuff to go on. I agree totally that we had too much of Joseph through uh, this story and not enough of Emma's eyes to be able to understand her at all. 
I agree with you, Chris. I felt like in some cases she was a complete doormat. And in other cases, she seemed like a strong person. And I wasn't really sure. I think she was legitimately conflicted. Yes. Because she was absolutely in love with Joseph Smith. I mean, I think that's pretty clear mm-hmm. by... um. Well, and also committed to the cause. Yeah, and committed to, to Mormonism. And, and, and so, even though she had her own strong opinions, she also tried to humble herself and get, um, kind of get in line because she thought that's what she was supposed to do. So she was always oscillating back and forth these two conflicting, um, roles that she, that she had and, and parts of her personality. Definitely. And I wish the notes would have been on the bottom of each page yes, oh, and yes, not in the absolutely. back yeah. because it made it really hard to read because after every quote, I wanted to know where did it come from? Right. And sometimes <laughs> I felt like there, um, they, there was historical information given that wasn't cited with a reference. Now, usually it was, but a few times I wanted a reference and there wasn't one. So that was a little disturbing. But there were um, 18 pages of bibliography, along with 56 pages of notes. So, you know, it was very well historically researched and documented. Um, but, but it is an interpretive biography, so they, they don't pretend that they don't have um, <laughs> an opinion. They, they're not completely objective, and, and, and that's recognized, you know. Definitely. I if we're if it's time to talk about the early marriage. Yeah, go ahead. Um, the one spot that I noticed, and and I will read it in my copy. It's on page twenty, and it says, "Not long after the return for their return from Harmony, Joseph went to Manchester Manchester Village on business for his father, but did not return at the appointed time." When Joseph finally arrived and sank into his chair, exhausted, his father asked where he had been. Joseph answered soberly, I have taken the severest chastisement that I have ever had in my life. As I passed by the hill Camorra where the plates are, the angel met me and said that I had not been engaged enough in the work of the Lord and that the time had come for the record to be brought forth. Nobody doubted his word. And it struck my mind all of a sudden that because it kind of puts into question if he ever didn't have a wandering eye <laughs> and so it almost in my mind was thinking wow is this angel moroni thing that reappears whenever it's convenient every time he's late from an appointment it anyway of course it's not in the book but that was my thought <laughs> interesting well he he does um repent um you know, I think it's in the Doctrine and Covenants where he kind of confesses to having, or or is it in, in his story about the first vision? Anyway, um, he does mention having um, frivolous thoughts and stuff as a, as a teenager, and I always wondered if that if that included, you know, going around with women. I'm, it's not. I just wonder. I can't remember where it is in the book, but it mentions someone in there that also began to question Joseph's revelations because they they seem to coincidentally coincide with all of the uh, uh, things that he needed to have done, you know, regarding money and regarding marriage and regarding all of these things. I, I can't remember which oh, page it's I, on. I think, I think that's the one that he's talking about when he... Um, he commands people to go to Canada to sell the copyright for the Book of yes. Mormon and that when they arrive that somebody is going to be there to buy it right away. But they come back empty handed. And I, I really like what it said. It said he said that uh, some revelations are of God, some are of man and mm-hmm. some are of the devil, which I think was <laughs> I think the um, authors kind of conveniently put that in to sort of give an out for um, faithful members to maybe think about polygamy and DNC 132 in a slightly different way, you know. There is a point in the book when um, when Emma is is con- confronting Joseph about the polygamy revelation and actually says, so, mm-hmm. you know, are you sure this is not from the devil? Are you sure this isn't one of those ones? <laughs> he said, no, this is, this is definitely from God. Yeah, that was rather awesome. <laughs> <laughs> So, but we do, we should mention that, that most of the source, um, materials used for, for the book were compiled by the, the, the Utah branch of the church. 
to support um, b- polygamy. Um, and so some people, you know, wonder if there's some coercion there and maybe people were exaggerating their polygamous relationships with Joseph Smith. Um, so it's really, it's kind of hard to, to break through that and and to know, because a lot of this stuff was written way after the events actually happened, um, the documentation. So um, we uh, we should just keep that in mind. One thing that I did like this book over um, Compton's In Sacred Loneliness is uh, that it has more of the day-to-day activities that were that were going on. So you get more of a an active presence of what was going on with Emma uh, rather than from the perspective of the other uh, wives that were running around. And I like that book over Compton's for that reason alone. At least it does give more uh, time to Emma. Hey, I've got um, some comments from the uh, chat room here. One from Heather. Um, you know, we were talking before about Emma being really devoted to Joseph, and she offers that she doesn't really agree that uh, Emma was as devoted or loved Joseph as much as it appears. She says she had a friend who was married to a doofus. Um, uh, she she put on really loving and devoted face because that is what she thinks she should do as a good wife. Also, it gives her more dignity to put, um, you know, an everything is okay face than to be bowled over by his ridiculous behavior. But you know, from my perspective, to sort of build on what what Heather's saying, I I would say they're they're probably both true. I mean, I mean, we've all known women and men married to a doofus, you know, who like get into a a pattern of, of self denial. It'd be really hard, you know, Emma paid the price over and over and over again, dragged from this place to that place to this place to that place. And I, I think we all have blind spots, and she probably had a blind spot there. Um, but but I, I do think she, she genuinely loved Joseph, but um, I don't know that she always saw everything clearly. Well, I think there's the added complication of at that point in history, women, when they got married, they didn't have a lot of options. Divorce wasn't really all that feasible of an option. So that maybe puts a different spin on things, but... Perhaps she was stubborn enough too to stay with him just despite her parents. Yeah, I think that she committed a lot uh, towards Joseph, and the, the more she committed to him, the deeper she got. Mm-hmm. So it became like a, an emotional, personal investment that she that made it more difficult for her to back away from. Uh, particularly since she had, you know, basically uh, abandoned her parents, left them completely, and she was stuck with Joseph. And so, with him and his story getting bigger and bigger, uh, it became to to where she actually had to at least act the part. Uh, Another thing that uh, was frustrating, I'm sure, and that augmented the problem was that she was dealing with crisis all of the time. Uh, You know, he was either in jail or he or she was chasing him around because of some female, you know, that was in the home or what have you. She was always dealing with a crisis, which I'm sure gave her less time to be uh, more introspective about why she was there or what the purpose was or whether she loved Joseph or not. It was business as usual. And and one thing that did come out in the book was that she had quite the business acumen. She did. And she also, during all those trials, she had to kind of hold down the fort and she had little kids that she was always, um, you know, in charge of. And, and Joseph was off doing all this stuff and some of it was necessary and some of it wasn't, but she was often left back at home to 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 take care of things and to make sure things um were in order at home so she was alone a lot actually and she was pregnant a lot too yeah, she was. i had forgotten how much time she had spent in pregnancy and and uh, burying you know dead infants and that torp- type of thing i had completely forgotten how much of her life was consumed by her own uh, personal physical health yeah almost mm-hmm. constantly pregnant yeah mm-hmm. yep Yep, and they kept losing, losing babies and children. Um. And I think that could bring us, perhaps, to talk about, um, I believe one child died shortly after the tarring and feathering uh, that Joseph suffered. Yeah. And I know that was really an eye-opener to me when I read about that part for the first time. Um, because, of course, I believe my impression... Uh, as a faithful member, and I haven't gone back to check the sources there, but, you know, it was basically, you know, these evil mobs who were against Joseph, and they're so bad, they drag him out of his home and tar and feather him when his poor child is, you know... He had twins that were both recovering from the measles. 
Yeah, definitely. And so, um, but then to find out that some of the mob, um, that the Johnson, two of the Johnson boys, I believe, joined the mob and believed he had made advances on their 16-year-old sister and had perhaps made those advances to get their property. Um, so that right. kind of... And that was the whole purpose, um, why they were talking about castration, because they were upset with him for possibly um, having a sexual re- relationship with their with their sister. So they thought yes. they could take care it of it. It was Miranda Hyde Johnson, who he was married to. I'm not quite sure what the time frame is with that. Right. Yeah, that, that for me was a real eye-opener, because I'd always thought of that, as, as a believing member, I'd always thought of that moment as being, oh, these people just hate you know, Joseph Smith, because he's the prophet of God, but, you know, they actually have valid motivations. And that polygamy was actually part of that, you know, um, impetus to, to uh, get that mob started. That was really a real opener for me. So. Right. Um, So, so that was basically the first mention of Joseph being um, possibly, um, what is the word? Infidelity. I don't know. <laughs> Acting on... Licentious? I don't know. <laughs> That's a good His word. His lasciviousness. Yeah. So, um, but we don't have really great documentation on that at all, so th- that's unclear. Um, and that was in Kirtland, right? Mm-hmm. Was that in Kirtland? 1832. And then they got um, forced out of Kirtland. The, the other things that happened in, in Kirtland regarding Joseph and Emma... They had some boarders, or, or they um, had some kind of teenage girls living with them, helping out with the with the chores and whatnot. Um, and one of those girls later said that when when she was twelve years old, Joseph told her that she would in the future be his first um, plural wife. That she that he told her about that at age twelve mm. while she was living with them. Disturbing. Yes, I hate to make yeah, uh, comparisons between Joseph Smith and Warren Jeffs, but he always comes to mind when I hear that story. It just, you know, when you're, you're talking about uh, that soon after he was married, let's see, Emma and Joseph were married in 1827, and this was 1832, 18, 1832 to 34. Uh, he, he was, he, that was just the kind of man that he was. I mean, you get that impression at the very beginning of these stories in whichever book I've ever read in this one in particular, it happened so soon after he and Emma were married that you just, it, it, it's a pattern. It's a, it's a personality and a character pattern of Joseph Smith. Yes. And the fact that it seems like I, many, if not all had lived with him at some mm-hmm. point. So these are people yeah. that he's been a father figure to that. He's had particular, um, reason to be around them and to somewhat groom them mm-hmm. and and the other people that he approached um uh there were several who were teenage daughters of friends of his you know close um other people in the in the church um, yes. leadership uh, and i always now this is something you <laughs> i was wondering how your view on early polygamy was changed by by this book Oh, it was changed a lot because especially with the work I do, um, with, uh, uh, as a victim advocate and actually realizing, um, the Heber C. Kimball, Violet and Helen Marr Mm -hmm. was just a huge moment for me when I realized, um, she was 14, wasn't she? Yes, yes, she was 14. She was 14, which of course, you know, people say, oh, they did that back then. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Not, I'm not sure about that they did it back then. But the way it happened seemed so entirely sick and wrong. Um, the fact that he initially started by asking for Violet. And how uh, Heber C. Violet Kimble, was Heber's wife. Yes, right? asking right. for Violet. And they... Uh, you know, it's described, I, I, I'm not sure if it's necessarily in here because I have read other books that cover the same material, that he spent three days, you know, sorrowing and having such a hard time dealing with it. And then finally, after the three days, he gave up her to Joseph. And then Joseph was like, just kidding. 
that was the, you know, this is your Abrahamic test. (laughs) And then not too long afterwards, then asks for Helen Marr. And I think in some ways, once a man's given up his wife, well, what's his daughter? You know, he's probably relieved at that point. And what what he offered Helen Marr um, in exchange for for, um, marrying him, which was eternal life for not only her, but for her, but for her family members. And she said, now one of the quotes that really stood out to me um, was Helen Marr saying that if, if I would have known that there was anything more to it than just a ceremony, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have um, gone through with the marriage. Yeah, I remember that one too. That really hit me. Yeah. Because she was 14 mm-hmm. and, and apparently she didn't understand that it wasn't just a ceremony. It was the full Monty. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think I agree with both of you. Their ages. I'm a teacher, and I teach 14 year old girls, and it's just they're just so immature, and they're making these decisions, and he's guilting them into it by promising them. This. And they're very impressionable. Yeah, and he he's the prophet. So what are they supposed to say? No, of course they're going to say yes. Um, and the, and the other thing, yeah. So that was probably the biggest revelation to me was the ages of the women he was marrying because I was always told, as I was growing up, the oh widows. well, <laughs> yes, the, the widows. And I imagined these, and they show these pictures of these old ladies uh-huh. that, that Brigham Young, um, his wives. Well, their pictures were old. That doesn't mean they were old when they were married. You know, I mean, the pictures were taken of them when they were old ladies, and that's what they showed me as a <laughs> as a young person. I thought, oh well, if that's what you know. <laughs> but it, it's totally different if if they're marrying and Joseph at the time he married um most of these ladies they were they were um in their early 20s to teenage years and he was in his late 30s at that time um yeah so yeah it's a little different than what I what I um had the impression of growing up I know I know that for me um reading about all of this kind of made me think about Joseph Smith in an entirely different light, mostly because I was thinking, all right, maybe I could accept that um, he was inspired, you know, and received prophetic revelation about all sorts of things. But this in some ways just seems like, oh, but now he's suddenly becoming just another cultish-like leader, you know, taking advantage of his followers and things like that. So for me, that was that required me to do a little bit of revising of my own understanding about Joseph Smith, because that was a bit of a disappointment. All right. Sorry. So my question for all of you is, how much do you think Joseph knew? I mean, there's a, so let's fast forward to Nauvoo. Um, I mean, how much did Emma know? Joseph is, is, is marrying and marrying and marrying and hopping in bed and sneaking around. And, and um, there is how much, you know, do you think that uh, she understood what was going on? (laughs) <laughs> well, the authors make it seem like she had her suspicions, but she didn't know. And Joseph purposefully hid things from her. And in fact, um, one time when she was going to, when he was going to meet one of his young wives, um, he was he was um, hiding out because the the police were after him, um, and he wanted one of his young wives to come and and visit him and kind of consummate their their new marriage. And he he sent them a, a letter that said. Um, now come tonight because I really want to see I want I really want to see you guys, her and her parents. And um, but watch out because if Emma's coming tonight, then then, then don't, don't come. come. But, but if, <laughs> if she's not coming, then please come and burn this letter, by the way, because I don't want this getting out. And um, and there were several letters that that um, that they found that apparently people didn't burn, that say burn this letter after right after you read it. They mentioned that several times in the book where they said uh, a lot of this stuff is difficult to research because they knew that, that they were being told to destroy evidence, destroy the notes, destroy that thing. So this whole, this whole mysterious secrecy that was involved in it, 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 at the end of the day, it makes you wonder, you know, exactly what kind of picture we have. You know, I, I think that's the saddest thing because we have, you know, a lot of the documents that we have now say destroy after reading. You have to assume that the majority were destroyed. We have instances we know from, you know, from people like Leonard Arrington who talk about the church historian's office destroying documentation. We have rumors of Katie Carter, you know, the head of the Daughters Utah Pioneer, had a long history of destroying documents. It's sad to think about what's lost out there. 
you know, e- even in this book where, you know, like I was saying before, it's so much of it is about Joseph through Emma because we lost everything, you know, so much of our history has been burned and stuffed down the memory hole. It just, it just sickens me. And to your question, John, I'm not, I'm not certain that she knew a lot of what was going on. That's kind of when I mentioned about the fact that this, this whole thing was a big joke on Emma, you know, to where she was, she was being outwardly, you know, vocal about her dislike of polygamy. And yet she would have these meetings with the Relief Society and not knowing that, you know, two of the women in her presidency that close to her were married to her husband. I don't think, I think that we would have seen more of a reaction from her. Uh, There's also the story about Eliza R. Snow and the whole confrontation between Emma and Eliza and her supposedly tossing her down the stairs. And she was, you know, uh, visibly with child and that type of thing. I'm not quite sure still to this day, after reading multiple stories uh, about this time, in uh, Emma and Joseph's life, if that actually occurred, because it makes no sense to me uh, that if Emma or if uh, Eliza were that visibly pregnant, Emma would have known about it way earlier on. So it wouldn't have been, you know, some, oh, you did what? You, you know, you're, you're, you're pregnant with somebody's child and then she's just finding out it was Joseph. Uh, that's another one of the things that just make me go, huh? You know, when talking about Emma, it makes no sense at all. Well, and, and they made it clear, the authors made it clear that that story was <clears throat> not, it, it, the sources were questionable, and they were written a long time after, and they were, um, um, several of them from em- Eliza's family trying to kind of put her in a better light, and Emma as like this shrew um, that was just a mean spirit. Um, but, you know, Eliza never did have children that I know of. Um, she was, she was... Um, infertile and this could be um an explanation that her family that made sense to her family why she couldn't have children because you know emma pushed her down the stairs and made her infertile right so let's talk about what i think is the most interesting chapter from emma's life when she went on the the you know joseph starts the relief society then she turns it into the anti-polygamy crusaders of Mm -hmm. course most people don't know that uh, the um, the Relief Society was dissolved for the next twenty years um, because of that. But um, yeah, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah didn't Joseph Smith um, end the Relief Society before he died? Yeah, it did yes. seem that way. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. and then and then Brigham Young didn't start it back up um, at least for twenty years. That's why I kind of find it a little bit funny that Sister Beck is like, go search the history of the Relief Society. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, and Emma did want to, um, and Joseph was was actually coming to the meetings and saying, um, everybody watch out for, for people claiming to come in my, in my name and asking you to, to marry them or do, um, impure things. And so it's so confusing because he was specifically telling at least um, at least the, his uh, co-conspirators say that he, he gave them explicit instructions to go and marry other women. And yet he told the women to watch out for those kinds of people. He was such a tool. <laughs> <laughs> he just, he really was. Of course, they had the whole John C. Bennett episode that... Um, I still I want to find out more about John C. Bennett because he always gets a, such a bad such Scapegoat. a bad rap exactly, yeah. and I want to know really what happened because so much of what I understood about church history is um, sort of a fabrication. So I just wonder how much of that is a fabrication. Well, one of the things that I think is really interesting about that whole chapter is how it's kind of setting up that there was this. Um, the beginning of what we what we sort of see the comes to a culmination in the in the in the transitional period of Mormondom, but what we what we see beginning in this period is that we see signs of the development of code words to refer to polygamy. So people who are in the know know that these code words uh, people would be like, yes, we don't endorse polygamy, and then they'd say these code words as sort of like a wink, you know, <laughs> that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And so we have this sort of dualism of what's going on publicly versus what's going on privately, those who are in the know versus those who don't, um, that kind of a thing, um, insider, outsider knowledge. And um, so we see the beginning of that sort of tension in that culture, which um, if any of you read Damon Smith's um, dissertation, he seems to talk about how that really comes to, really kind of uh, brings the Mormon society to its to its knees in the 1880s, 1890s, that kind of thing. So, 
Interesting. Yeah, I thought of that in that chat. I think it's the same chapter where it um, talks about the Times and Season article. And um, I don't remember who, but it, it had the... Um, had the signatures of all of the of the Relief Society. Emma's name headed the list. Then and, and they say, what do they say? Basically, there there is no there polygamy is no poli- happening yeah, here. There is no polygamy here. But, yeah, but there is polygamy here. But they called it something else. Yeah, and something else. Mm. it wasn't spiritual wifery because they said <clears throat> they were calling it that, and then John C. Bennett right. usurped that name, so they dropped that one. And then what did they call it? Celestial call- marriage. Celestial marriage. Is that what it was? Oh, yeah. I was going to say that so, was one of my biggest aha moments, um, perhaps in this book and, and in church history in general, when I finally realized what celestial marriage was yeah. the code word for, that that was polygamy. Yeah, right. I agree that for me, um, this book really made that clear, just that, you know, that the idea of celestial marriage, which um, the contemporary church really you know, trumpets and thinks is an important thing is so intertwined with polygamy. You know, you can't really separate them very easily. Right. All right. Let's talk about the uh, next phase, the anti Emma years for the, probably for the next uh, 70 years. Um, Brigham <laughs> and uh, Emma didn't get along so well. Right. And that started um, basically with Joseph's death because, well, actually it started with the, the polygamy, um, that Emma stood her ground and said, no, I am not going to participate in this. And she um, condemned those who would. And she actually finally convinced Joseph Smith, apparently, to to at least publicly denounce polygamy um, to save his marriage, basically, because she would not, she would not consent. Um, and then when Joseph Smith, um, the martyrdom happened, and that, that sealed <coughs> Emma's fate as um uh someone to be persecuted and and derided um so she was blamed part she was kind of blamed for joseph's death because she had asked him to come and surrender but so did a Mm -hmm. whole bunch of other people that's um something they brought out in the book um and then so so brigham young was gone he was he was not there when joseph died and when he came back into town um, do you guys want to talk about what happened when Brigham came back? No, <laughs> I'm blanking on it. I'm he sorry. okay, so he um he he did not go to see Emma or or um or Joseph's mom or anybody. He wrote a a, a letter saying, "Well, I don't to to I guess one of his daughters who wasn't there. I don't know how the Smiths are doing because I haven't visited them yet. I haven't had time." And that was six. Um, it was six weeks after he arrived back in Nauvoo before he visited Emma that we have, um, that's what it looks like anyway. And what he was busy doing is taking um, leadership of the church and getting all the followers behind him. Um, so I guess that did keep him busy, but he, he from the moment he walked back into town, he, um, he wasn't nice to Emma at all. He he wasn't sympathetic. He wasn't compassionate. He wasn't kind. He wasn't he wasn't there, even fair. There were also all of the finances to be reckoned with, which you know just made it all the more complicated. Right, because he felt like as leader of the church, he should get the property that belonged to Joseph because he was the um, the uh, trust trustee holder. And trust. Yeah, the trustee and trust. Um, but Emma thought because she was his spouse that she should have um, right to the property. So this was a huge source of contention. Well, he he, he wasn't really the trustee in trust. I mean, that, there was no definition. There was no power ex- exchange defined. So it was just up for grabs, you know, and, and you, you know, we're so influenced today by the backstory the church has had, but there was the, the only clear successor was Hiram and Hiram, you know, of course died with Joseph. So, it, you know, I just want to emphasize there was no smooth transition at all, and immediately the twelve started gathering their, gathering their, um, their wagons, and really in that in that early days it was the twelve because Brigham Young hadn't emerged. You know, he was the president of the twelve, but he hadn't emerged as a clear definitive leader. So, so you can imagine the tension. Yeah, you know, all this property, the Nauvoo House, the temple, all the stuff in Joseph's name, um, the debt, the everything else that they immediately had to figure out who was going to take, and it just wasn't clear. Of course, until the epiphany when 
Brigham turned into Joseph Smith, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Historical accounts created conveniently after the fact. <laughs> well, I just felt for her because uh, she was, you know, they had accrued all of this debt. Joseph had accrued all this debt, and a lot of it had been on personal loan. And so she was, she was now responsible for the debt. Uh, Joseph's personal debt and uh, according to the book you know he'd taken all of this money out to help build up the kingdom uh, you know which was where the personal finances merged with the, the church's finances yeah including and a fairy that that's right and, and then <laughs> you know Brigham was just turning cold shoulder to her she was having to run for him to you know ask permission to keep the the desk and you know the the bible and and asking for assistance with this because it was falling on her shoulder she was going to have to repay this debt and no one was no one was stepping up yeah she she inherited the debt but none of the assets exactly she She did inherit quite a lot um she had uh three or four farms she had the the mansion house the nauvoo house um uh and a few other, there were several lots that she that she kept possession of. Um, Brigham did deed uh, a house over to um, um, her, her, not her mother, Joseph's mother, Lucy. Um, but then it, it, this stuff was so complicated in in the book. It was hard for me to keep straight exactly like what happened. I still am not quite sure. But apparently, Emma had to buy back um, those properties because the church was not allowed to own more than 10 acres uh, of land. And um, so the state got involved and she had to repurchase like the mansion house and the Nauvoo house and um, several other properties. So it was very difficult for her to sort out and for Brigham to sort out. um, uh, I think Brigham ended up basically with no properties in the end. In, in Nauvoo, basically. Isn't that, isn't that what you got? That's I mean, it was really understood. confusing. Mm-hmm. It was confusing. <laughs> I, I think made mostly so because uh, the, of the conflation between the personal and the church finances. And uh, still, even trying to figure out any legal aspect of it uh, is, is made even more complicated because of how much they owed, you know, how much they owned in the city, how much they owned of the city, that type of a thing. Yeah. And you know, the, the narrative we've all heard in Sunday school is the church against the apostates at the time of the, the martyrdom until, you know, Brigham Young led the, the saints out, but it was really a mess. I mean, there was in, in fighting, there was a lot of apostasy. Um, some, some estimate as much as half of the church left and didn't go with them um, across the river. Um, so, and then there was, you know, after they left, they tried to resell properties and it, t- it was just this messy, messy, messy um, land grab and, and, and falling apart. And um, you, you can imagine how difficult it was for Emma. Um, but, you know, if she had gone across the river, she basically had two choices the way I see it. She could either marry Brigham or marry Heber. Um, and we know what happened to most of their unfavorite wives. I mean, they went off to, to Panguitch or to, you know, Logan or something, and that's where they, they, they sat and, and lived off the welfare of the stake president, you know? And she didn't want to have anything to do with polygamy, which was um, probably the main reason she didn't join herself with, with the main part of the church that was following Brigham, because she knew that that, she, she, that, that would be a part of it, and she, she didn't want to have anything to do with it. Well, you know, the the part that they don't teach you in Relief Society in the love story between Joseph and Emma is, you know, how many times she threatened divorce. I mean, even, you know, in the situation that they were, she was saying, all right, this is it. I've reached my tolerance line. It's it's either you do this or I leave. And and it's it was a recurring theme for me while reading the book again this time because I was trying to figure out Emma. You know, she would get to this point where she would say, no, 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 I disagree with this. And Joseph would come back. And you had this, this tug of war in their marriage where he was saying, okay, well, I'll give a little bit of this, but God is going to come and do this. You know, you can't have the... The second anointing, you can't be sealed to me for time and all eternity unless you do this. And it was constant. It, it, this reading 
of this book this time around for me, all I saw was this dynamic where I felt like Emma was abused. Yet she, you know, he was just constantly tossing things at her. And I know that I'm going a little bit backwards in the conversation, but I did want to point out my frustration uh, while reading it this time because he, he even... It's even canonized, you know, in DNC 132. Emma is going to do what I say she's going to do, or she is going to die, basically. Right. She's going to And there be was destroyed. a lot of power control, a lot of power struggle going on between the two. Yeah. Uh, uh, while you're back there, before Joseph died, I forgot to bring out something that surprised me was that Joseph initiated Emma um, as, a, as a female Mason when, mm-hmm. when they first started getting involved with, with Masonry and, and, um, the American Masons did not initiate women, but apparently a, a French sect did, and Joseph thought that would be a, a great thing for for his women. And so Emma was the first <laughs> was the first one to be initiated, and I, I thought that was interesting. She was also the first woman admitted into the prayer circle, uh-huh. and you know people talk about they say, well, if Emma was against this, how come that she conceded at this point? How come she agreed to this? And it was because there was all of this back stuff going on where Joseph was saying, you have to do this in order to get this. And it made me wonder at the end of the day, if she actually really did believe in, in the, the whole church. I don't know that she did, but you know, she, she would always cede to uh, this religious spiritual pressure. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I think that's evidence that she really did believe that Joseph was a prophet and that, and that, um, God spoke through him because a lot of times Joseph would would put a revelation in front of her and and she'd kind of kick a little and scream a little and then say, oh, I have to do what God wants me to do. So I guess I'll I'll do it. Although I did find it interesting that I, I believe it came up more than once from Emma and from Joseph himself that... Uh, I am only a prophet when acting as such. Mm-hmm. And then Emma also saying, you know, when he wasn't being the prophet, he was, you know, a regular man. So that's always hard to distinguish. Of course, when someone puts a revelation in front of you and says it's from God, I, you know, I, it's safe to assume they're acting as a prophet. So, yes, so yes, she, definitely. You know, she would take those things very seriously. All right. The, the last thing I want to talk about really doesn't deal with the content of the book so much as the um, when the book came out um, for I don't know, about 130 years, 120 years after the the saints left the Midwest, Emma was a bad guy. Um, she was she was burning in hell as far as most Mormons were concerned. She was a traitor, um, and she you know because she later got involved with the. Um, uh, to what extent it's not very clear. Not it doesn't seem like she was very um, super involved, but she was involved a little bit with the um, reorganized church movement in, in 1860. And of course she stayed and she married um, Colonel, what is it, Colonel? Louis Bitterman. Yeah, what was major. his rank? The major. Major, <laughs> major Bitterman. And, um, but, but um, this book came out in, in, a, in a time period when Emma's image started to be rehabilitated in mm-hmm. the church. And of course, the church really started. You know, there's there is a fictionalized ser- series on Emma and Joseph. There's a book about like their love story. They put up great big, um, tall, full size um, paintings of Emma and Joseph in the Nauvoo Temple. Um, and this is all fairly recently. I mean, I remember as a kid, and I, I you know, I was born in '73. There was still really negative anti Emma stuff going around at the, at the time, but they were starting to rehabilitate. So I think this book feeds into that, into that movement, even though the church dismissed it, like I talked about at the beginning of the podcast. Um, and, and now th- we, we have this, uh, new revised Emma. I, I'm just, I want to hear y- your, your thoughts on the, the, the new Emma versus the old <laughs> Emma. I, I, I noticed that too. I mean, I was thinking about my knowledge of Emma, thinking, I remember as a kid thinking she was sort of like the bad, wicked woman, you know? And now, the shit, it's totally shifted the other way. She's almost like a Mary, you know? If we were Catholic, she's our Mary, you know? And it's, um, people name their children Emma, and there's movies, and... And her, and her portrait hangs in the Relief Society yes, rooms. Yes, and-, and we always have the birthday party every March, you know? It's, it's... It's all for Emma, and and we love her now. Well, you know, I liked the old Emma. 
Uh, I mean, it's with the old Emma and, and even still, you know, reading the book, I'm like, okay, I'm on Emma's side. She was the one that had to put up with all this nonsense. And it, it, it always diminishes Joseph. I mean, I don't know how far Joseph can go in my mind, actually, but it always diminishes my respect for Joseph when reading these stories. And, and, uh, again, I, I really did like the old Emma. I thought she had spunk and I thought that she was, I liked her strong mindedness and I liked the fact that she wanted to educate the people around her. And I, and I thought she was a very loving, giving person. She always had people around her. She was always doing good for someone else, regardless of all the other stuff that was going on. You know, um, I was thinking about in preparation for this of possibly watching the uh, Mormon film, like, was Emma, my story, it came out a couple years ago. Um, and I was checking out some of the reviews that people had written about it on um, Netflix. And I, I a lot too. of the same, <laughs> like, tensions were there because you had um, you had people who were obviously, um, you know, they were like, this is whitewashing history. You had those people. And then you had those who were like, she was such an awesome woman. I really thought she was incredible. But then every now and then you get the occasional comment that was like, she was a a demon, you know, very vitriolic to her, like she was an enemy of the church, that kind of thing. So I think those tensions are still probably at work in in the culture. So I always get a kick out of the story about uh, her being a, accused of poisoning Joseph. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> those hallmark stories in every marriage. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I really think there's two forces at work here. Uh, one is a hundred years in the making, which is you know a- after the Second Manifesto and you know the demise of polygamy. Of course, the polygamists were all still polygamists way well into the 20s. But, you know, after that, we sort of had to create a new narrative in Mormonism. And we've come up with this hyper-romanticized view of the nuclear family and, and this, this, this view of romance. And I think this is just feeding that, which is a complete retelling of the story. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's telling it in, in modern terms. So I think that's why the church has done this. It should be noted that it's it's complete propaganda. It's complete fiction. You know these 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 statues of Joseph and Emma and all the paintings and and, and stuff. Not they didn't love each other, but that's just not the way. You know it, it it wasn't a romantic comedy. You know, and that's just not the way they they they, they interacted with each other. There's there's no room for Joseph and Emma in the proclamation of the family, for instance. The, the real Joseph and Emma, the the fictionized ones, fit in there really good. <laughs> well, that's nice. <laughs> so how many years were Joseph and Emma married? Does anybody know? Uh, 29? 27. Oh, she was around 40 when he was martyred, right? So, so about maybe 14 years or so? Something like that. So I just think it's interesting to note that um, Emma was married to uh, Louis Bitterman for 32 years. That was the bigger part of her life. And, and we she wouldn't go up completely. in a burst of flames or anything. Right. She was, know, she still she lived. Along with the polygamy. And, and um, l- the little baby who was born when Joseph um, died, he, he was raised basically by Louis Bitterman. That was his dad. That was his only, yeah. So uh, we forget about Louis um, Bitterman as part of Emma's life, but he, he was a huge part. And I think he should be... Um, I mean, I think we we definitely need to mention him here. I agree. Talk about a stable influence after living with uh, Joseph. I just can't even imagine the difference. And it seems like they had a lot of respect for him. And he really was a side note. I had no idea. Um, Emma ever remarried or what even happened to her. And it's like after the martyrdom, who cares? Yeah. You know, she just poof, like you said, she goes up in smoke. (laughs) Did anybody else think it was so weird how, um, given her history with fighting polygamy and really not approving of Joseph's actions, how then when her second husband has an illegitimate child, she embraces the child, takes the, the other woman in as a maid and makes him swear on her deathbed to take care of them. It's just, it's just really kind of strange. Like I can't explain that weird. Well, but that happened before Emma came along. And um, as far as we know, Nothing like that happened after they were married. So I think she was able to forgive his past transgressions and embrace this part of him. Um, cause she didn't contact this illegitimate child didn't contact him until she was like 25. So, I mean, it was, um, a kind of an act after the fact type of thing. Isn't that like somebody who's in war who gets a sliver later? I mean, you know, after Joseph, exactly. every, everything seemed probably. 
you know, sort of exactly. vanilla. Oh, an Ill- illegitimate child. Well, at least there was only one. I mean, Seriously, you know. it's like going from a soap opera to, you know, normal life. <laughs> the, the one other thing I want to say about the, the rehabilitation of, of, of Emma is I think the church does want to have more positive um, female role models. And there's just not very many because of the church itself, not because of, you know, anything in the nature of, of, of women. But, you know, you look at like the Book of Mormon and, you know, every, everybody's a, a complainer or a prostitute who even shows up in that book. So the church has to go and dust off all these um, these women who are, you know, Emma, Zena, um, a lot of those guys that were really complicated and dynamic and, and, and interesting people, but not in ways the church wants them to be. So the church has to, and that's, that, that goes full circle to the, you know, where I started, where the church, the, the, this book is, um, a faithful book. If you read it, it's cu- couched in faithful language, but to tell Emma's story reflects poorly on Joseph. You know, so Absolutely. so the, that's the church's dilemma, that, and that's why we have these oh these paintings that are all like uh you know th- that are that are so idealized because they can't have Emma the truth person without diminishing from Joseph. But that's okay, you know. Mm-hmm. Do you mind if we hit one more thing before we finish? Go for it. I thought part of the most interesting story, or at least for me, a part that got a lot of my interest was her sons and. So in 1860, Joseph III um, becoming the prophet of the reorganized church, um, that Alex and David mm-hmm. went on missions for the church. And basically, David, at some point uh, after returning from Utah, was institutionalized and that Emma, in her mind, had blamed it on that he came to Utah and and that she had warned him not to go. Um and then just from that point forward, Joseph trying to reconcile um, and her sons trying to rec- reconcile. Was there polygamy? Was there not polygamy? Um, and that that complicated um, thing going on. But they never really believed um, they never really believed in polygamy, like as a true doctrine, right? Her sons. No, no. But see, that's part of the double bind, I think. Um, that they discussed why Emma, to the end, denied, denied, denied. I think there was maybe one reference where they said when a church leader had, had, I can't remember who it was, but someone contacted her and she didn't quite say it, but she almost dissolved in such a way that they thought she was acknowledging the polygamy um, at the end. But she denied it and denied it because that put them in a bad spot because part of their authority had arrived that, Brigham had left the true, you know, LDS church. So to admit that Joseph was part of it um, really would take away from their credibility and from her son's credibility as a as the prophet of the reorganized church. Mm-hmm. Makes sense to me. Uh, also, the fact that the son had a mental illness, as I've tried to figure out Joseph Smith throughout the years, I've always wondered if there was a mental illness component uh, with Joseph, but that's a a podcast topic for another day, I'm sure. Yeah, that's a whole nother thing. <laughs> uh, so, um, so uh, you know, we've talked a lot about Emma. Uh, any last thoughts on the the book? Focusing it on the book, on on on, um, you know, the the delivery, or, or or your final thoughts on the authors? Oh well, I wrote. I remember uh, when I first wrote the book. I kind of wrote here that after reading the book that. Um, it's interesting because, you know, the contemporary church really stresses family life and being a good husband and all that kind of thing. And for me, after reading that book, I was like, wow, I would not want to be married to Joseph Smith. I mean, he alienated her parents from her. He neglected her, leaving her to care for household duties alone while he traveled. Um, he was frequently in and out of jail. He slept with 30-something women and expected her to condone those actions. Um, he was terrible with money and left her over $70,000 of debt when he died. Um, he, he had guests over all the time and expected her to cook for 50 people spontaneously. And um, it, her marriage to him ultimately made her the object of scorn and derision uh, well into her old age and afterwards. Um, I, I wouldn't want that. <laughs> no. You know, I think my... One thing that I thought of is Joseph is our as a martyr in the physical sense, and I almost feel like Emma was an emotional martyr. And I, I on the chat, somebody mentioned, just think how many other Emmas were out there that we don't even know about, and how sad that is. Definitely, 
this this book to me is a must read book uh, for anyone who's trying to understand uh, Joseph's style of polygamy. Um, there are a couple of books out there, but I think this is the best one as far as I, I, I know it has its challenges as to how much we actually see of Emma, you know, this Mormon enigma. But it really is one of the best books and it is one of the best uh, researched and documented ones. And I would I and I would and I do recommend it to people who are interested in this particular time of LDS history. Yeah, yeah, it stood the test of time. We should probably mention it's sort of a side rail, but the first edition, which came out in '84, actually had um, quoted uh, uh, some um, Hoffman material. But um, in the second edition, in the preface, they explain what they did and why they did it. But you know, other than that, which has been which has been corrected, um, well, they never claim to be prophets, so. I said they never claimed to be prophets, so how could they have known? That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, others higher up <laughs> were, were, were fooled. So, um, so um, it, it, it has it has stood the test of time and remains a, a well researched and and, uh, and good document, especially for those who are sort of faithful who may not have stomach for more blunt things like I don't know Quinn or or you know Compton's mm-hmm. and sacred loneliness. Um, you know, this is a good uh, way to ease yourself into the pool. <laughs> it also softens you towards Emma. At least it does for me. Uh, I felt like uh, at the end of the day that she was the one that was bearing uh, the brunt of a lot of things, and she was not the instigator. And and so I do have uh, quite a bit of sympathy for Emma after reading this book. Yep, me too. All right. Well, thanks everybody for participating. It's been a, a fun discussion. I, I've I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and. Uh, yeah, so the Thanks, John. Oh yeah, everybody needs to start reading a uh, um Goodbye I Love You. Is that where, Yeah. Is that yep. yes. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so run out and get a copy uh, excellent book and um as always the uh, discussion will continue on the webpage at mormonexpression.com. What are you pointing to, Zilpha? Oh, thanks for the um the participants on the uh chat. It's been fun to sit and watch watch the comments uh and uh uh, Jessica and Robin and uh, Alisa. <laughs> I told you I wouldn't remember. Zilpha and then and then Chris. Uh, th- thanks for participating. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Good night.